Hello everybody, haven't seen you in a while, welcome back to the Ghost of Text podcast, I am your host Gabe Casper, and uh, if my voice sounds a little bit different today, it's because I'm testing out uh, my first microphone that I've got plugged into here, Uh, the second microphone is not really ready to go yet, so far it's just this one that I'm using. But uh, as soon as I get that second microphone here and up and running, I'm going to have some guest episodes coming up soon. So keep an eye out for that. But for today, I figured, uh, well, it's since it's the last day of the month, and uh, I wanted to test out this microphone, why not talk about something I wanted to talk about? Um, I'm going to be talking about John Wick and Atomic Blonde. They, uh, if you've seen these movies, you can understand why I'm talking about both of them, because in a way they're very, very similar, but I'm going to go each piece at a time and uh, talk about why they're so damn good. Uh, we'll start with John Wick. The original John Wick movie came out in 2014. It was directed by Chad Stahelski, Stahelski I think that's how you say it, Stahelski, and David Leach, and uh, it stars Keanu Reeves. And uh, if you guys haven't seen the memes that are already made about this movie, uh, uh, the the story is is that this is a a tale about how Keanu Reeves is uh, playing this ex assassin, ex hitman called John Wick, uh, who retires from uh, all of his you know hitman work and to get married and have a wife and just retire. And uh, his wife dies of cancer. And then his wife leaves him a pet dog, uh, so that way he doesn't have to mourn alone. And then his house is broken into by some people from the Russian mob, I believe. And so they break into his house to steal his car, and they ended up beating the crap out of him and killing his dog. And a lot of the memes come out of like, oh no, uh, Thanos killed John Wick's dog. Well, Thanos is gonna die. Because uh, as soon as the dog dies, uh, Keanu Reeves just goes ape shit and murders, like, oh my god, I think upwards of, like, 30 people, 30 mobsters in this movie. I, there's somebody has, I forget what it was, somebody has the official death count for this movie, but it's a lot for murdering a dog. <laughs> like, even uh, even later on in the movie where he's going to get his revenge, there, he's, he's, he's even, like, killing people. And they're like, it's just a fucking dog! So, um... I mean, memes aside, I actually thought it was a pretty cool idea for a revenge story to make it about a dog. I mean, obviously, within the context of the story, it's not just that they killed a dog. It's that the dog had an immense sentimental value to him because he had just lost his wife and the dog was to help him mourn and all he wanted was pretty much to be left alone. So it was, it was a lot of stuff more than just the dog itself. But using this dog as a jumping-off point uh, was a really unique choice, and I like how they did that. Um, Mainly because a lot of revenge movies that are out now, or have been out since then, because, I mean, the revenge movies are as old as time. But a lot of those revenge movies talk about, like, you know, like, uh, my wife got murdered, or, you know, they killed my family, or the classic, like, Harrison Ford 
you know, revenge movies where he's like grabbing people and going, I want you murder my family. So <laughs> it's, it's something that's seen a lot all the time. And it's really easy to jump off that way and just do the, oh, they murdered my family. They took my family away from me. And therefore there's the motive for revenge. But making it about a dog is actually really fun and unique. Cause I mean, I think in a more hyperbolic way, I think everybody feels that way about their own dog. Where it's like, if somebody so much as kicks my dog, I'm going to, whip the shit out of him but john wick is a very exaggerated version of that uh sentimentality i think people have for dogs but uh what was really interesting about uh how this movie was made was when the screenwriter had wrote john wick before they started casting filming you know getting directors together anything it was planning on being much more grounded i mean the setup was the same but a lot of the original story was going to be like John Wick killing maybe like four or five people. And there was not going to be any like, you know, hardcore intense action where there's like guns shooting everywhere and all of the martial arts. It was just going to be like a guy that's like super smart and like outthinks, you know, the guys he's killing. And uh, in a thriller way, I'd say it was compared. I would compare it a lot to like a law abiding citizen with Gerard Butler. It's going to be a lot more that way. But then uh, Chad Stahelski and David Leach got a hold of it and they thought, oh my God, we um, this would be a great just action movie. We were able to get a really good actor to pull off all of the st stunts and all these uh, cool shootouts in the movie. And it was, I mean, it was really easy for them to call up uh, Keanu Reeves. Um, a lot of the people that worked on the action and the choreography and all the stuff have known Keanu from all of his other movies. In fact, uh, Chad Stahelski, one of the directors, uh, used to be Keanu Reeves' stunt double in The Matrix. So even the director had lots of experience with action work, and they had already worked with Keanu Reeves countless times, so they were like, well, it's just super easy to get Keanu in here. And man, Keanu Reeves just goes all out in this movie. Um... It's a very, very close competitor to The Matrix. I don't want to say it's better, but I don't even want to say Matrix is better. It's just because they're so good in their own way, in their own unique ways. And, man, they're just... its Keanu just destroys it in these, in these movies. Um, he does all of his own martial arts in the movie. I think in some of the scenes he does his own driving. And he does... He did training for all of the shooting and all of the hand-to-hand -hand combat. And you can find videos of that on YouTube where he's working out and he's like on shooting ranges. And the guy is like a, a beast. You just see him on the shooting range in one video where he's like got a, I think it's like an AR-15 or something. I can't remember what he's shooting. But he's shooting some assault rifle at down the range. And then all of a sudden when they're telling him to switch, he just like drops it, picks up a gun real, uh, handgun real fast and just bah, 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 and hits all these targets. It's insane. He looks like a, uh, Will Smith and Suicide Squad where he's shooting at all the targets. Um, but Keanu does a really cool and unique job in the movie. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's like a modern classic already. It's just because of that style choice to have Keanu do everything. And so nobody's thinking like, oh, there's a stunt double there. There's a stunt double there. And it feels much more personal for the audience with Keanu Reeves seeing him do all this stuff. Um, the action itself is something that is very rarely seen in modern action flicks. I mean, the 
Uh, for instance, uh, a common cliche in action movies is like uh, pistols or even um, assault rifles being shot constantly without any jams or any uh, any um, reloads or anything. They just have infinite ammo. And there's plenty of times where John Wick has to reload throughout the movie. Uh, like my favorite one was he's like, he like hits some dude in the throat with his um, pistol. And when the guy stepped back, he went to shoot him and the gun clicked because it was empty. So he had to take a second to reload his gun, shoot him, and then get right back into the action. So it's cool that there's this attention to detail in the action where he has to reload. Um, he does have bits where he takes out guys like really, really fast, but he'll occasionally get into big fights with just one-on-one -on -one person where he'll have like a real struggle going to fight them. Uh, in particular, my favorite one in the first movie was him fighting over a knife with the, one of the guys that broke into his house. And they're having this huge, immense struggle uh, as he's trying to push the knife down on the intruder. And the guy keeps trying to push, push the knife back. And it feels like a real, realistic, intense fight. And it's just so cool to have it so gritty and fast-paced at the same time. So you really get a sense of why people think John Wick is this uh, godlike character that can just wipe out people. Because they, they hype him up really big in the first 10 minutes of the movie where everybody's like, oh my god, you stole John Wick's car, you killed John Wick's dog, oh my god. And you're really thinking like, oh, what is, um, I wonder what you know makes him so hardcore. And in the first shootout scene, everybody who sees it is like, oh, now I get it. Uh, yeah, this, he's just an invincible, fast moving character. And it carries on throughout all of these movies where he's just doing insane shit in these fights. Like in the second movie, he kills, uh, two guys with a fucking pencil, just picks up a pencil and kills two dudes with it. And then I, um, the trailer for the third one just came out and it was showing him, uh, killing a guy with a book. The. <laughs> uh, they just, they keep stepping it up and they're doing all these cool stuff with the action. And, uh, back to the writing of it, another really unique thing that made it stand out from the others was the, the world that it had built within it. Uh, like, uh, the hotel that he stays at, that's a hotel built for assassins and, um, hitmen. And he's meeting all these different people that work different, uh, hit jobs and he meets all of the, um, different resources that are built within it, like the doctor that, um, patches up people in there and how there's like their own currency of gold coins that they give out to each other. And it's, it's that little, you know, addition of building its own world that wasn't really asked for. Nobody really asked for that. They just wanted a revenge movie, but building this cool little world made it stand out from all the others. And it honestly built more side characters that were fun out of a movie that's supposed to just be about John Wick. Like, um, Lance Reddick is the, I guess, I forget, I don't know if he has a name, I that's, feel bad. Uh, he's the concierge in the hotel, and his character is so much fun, and I'm glad he's, he's sticking around for the third one. And then Ian McShane is playing the, uh, the manager of the hotel, and, I don't know, he seems pretty interesting in the first movie, but they don't expand on him more until you get to the second movie and that's another thing cool about these movies is like when it comes to the world of assassins he's in and all the people of power it just with each movie it looks like it expands more and more and more where you show different people and different worlds like when he travels into uh europe for one of his targets and there's a hotel 
down in Europe that he stays at. The best part of that uh, scene where he goes down to Europe is when he meets the manager. And the manager's like, oh, I have to ask, are you here for the Pope? And he's like, oh, no, no, I'm not here for the Pope. And the manager's like, oh, thank God. Um, but it's really cool seeing how it's expanding each and each and each movie. And I'm excited to see where it goes with the third movie, because this is supposed to be the last one. Um, and then they're definitely making a lot of callbacks to the Matrix in these movies, where they keep bringing back like little Easter eggs in the background, or they'll even bring back actors from the matrix. Like they brought back, uh, Lawrence Fishburne and played Morpheus in the matrix. And they got him to, uh, they got him to play some mob boss that was like running, um, this sort of mafia within, um, like undercover homeless people throughout, um, throughout the city, which sounds weird when I explain it, but if you haven't already seen the movie, this at, this is the second movie. If you haven't already seen the second movie, you got to go watch that because that whole sequence with Lawrence Fishburne is awesome. And I don't know. I think that if I was going to critique it, I'd say like the villains or like the targets he has through the first two movies aren't really that interesting of people. Because it's kind of hard to combat how intense John Wick's character is with a villain that seems just as um, unique and intense in their own way. So, like, yeah, the Russian mob boss in the first one is just like, eh, like, I don't know, he just seems like a means to an end. And then the second one, uh, I don't know, I just, I didn't feel it with that villain. He just felt like a guy. I didn't really care whether or not John Wick killed him. And then, but Ruby Rose is like his lieutenant in the second movie and she's pretty cool. They made it, added an element with her where she was kind of like a, like a, I don't know, like a, what do they call it? A minion in a Bond movie where she had her own little gimmick where she's mute and does sign language and all of that. And that's a, it was a pretty cool twist on her, but she's not in the movie that much to really be that significant. So I'd say that's definitely something that's a worth critiquing and i hope they fix by the third movie now uh what is so like overall what i want to say about this movie is normally when we have either a keanu reeves movie or we ha we're asking for an action movie i don't really think we ask for a lot as an audience we're usually saying things like oh, as long as there's you know as long as there's blood and gore as long as there's you know guns exploding everywhere explosions car chases um we're pretty much going to be pretty happy so, I mean, from that basic standpoint, we don't ask for a lot. And then John Wick came around and they were like, um, we're going to up the cinematography. We're going to up the choreography of all the fights. So all the fights are unique and intense and fun. We're going to add our own music to it, which definitely keeps the pace going up for the audience. We're going to get a well-known actor. We're going to get him to do his own stunts. We're going to get him to do his own driving. And we're going to build a world, this, you know, our own little universe inside of the movie. And they gave us, like, all this shit we didn't ask for. And it's awesome. Like, they just... It's just an example of people that want to go above and beyond with movies. And I'm glad that they're doing that. And I'm glad that it's having an impact on future, you know, future action movies or future um, character stories. And that brings us to the second movie which is Atomic Blonde. Now, part of the reason Atomic Blonde is very close to 
uh, John Wick is that um, the director of Atomic Blonde is David Leach, who was one of the directors of John Wick. And uh, I'm trying to remember what he did after Atomic Blonde. Um, oh, uh, after Atomic Blonde, he went and did um, Deadpool 2. That's what he was doing. Now I remember, because like in the credits for Deadpool 2, they're showing one of the... For his credit, they were put... Nah, what did they say? So one of the guys that killed John Wick's dog... That's that's pretty funny. Um, But David Leach takes a lot of the spirit of John Wick's action and hand-to-hand combat and the grittiness of it and carries it over into Atomic Blonde. Now, a lot of um, Atomic Blonde's unique aspects come much more from the character than it does the actual action. Because by by the time Atomic Blonde came out, uh, we were pretty used to this new format because of John Wick 1 and 2. I believe 2 was already out by then. So we were pretty used to this kind of action, which, well, it's not like it wasn't unwelcome. We were glad to see it. But what made Atomic Blonde so cool was that, you know, they they upped it up with the character itself. Um, I'll start by going with the plot, I guess. Uh, The plot is um, Charlize Theron plays this uh, uh, agent, secret agent for the, I think for England, yeah, uh, for England named uh, Lorraine Broughton. And she's sent down to the Soviet Union in the heart of the Cold War and is supposed to find this file that's got all of the um, double agents' uh, real names on them. So she's supposed to find this file before Russian agents do and that way she can protect other agents that are still undercover in the field. And she encounters other agents that are trying to help her, like one of them's played by James McAvoy, uh, one of them's played by uh, Bill Skarsgård, uh, that's the guy that played Pennywise in It, if that's the right Scars Guard I'm thinking of. I don't know, it's one of the Scars Guards. And it just it builds up in intensity as you find out more and more and more about who's really doing what. There's double agent plots, there's even triple agent plots, and it gets more and more intense and you find out more about every single character, including Charlize Theron's character, until you reach the very end and everything's revealed. I'm going to say that now just because after this, I'm going to start going into spoiler territory for this movie. And I don't, um, if you haven't seen Atomic Blonde, I would suggest you see it. It's not as good as John Wick. It's got some issues with it that I'll get into later, but I still think it's very worth the watch. So spoiler warning. Um, I remember like a year before this movie was made, uh, uh, that was about the time that Daniel Craig was pretty sure he wasn't going to come back as James Bond. And he was saying, oh, I'm, not, I'm not really going to come back. And a lot of people were saying, like, oh, maybe this person's to play James Bond. Maybe this person. Maybe this person. And it went all across the board. Like, one of the ones I was definitely going for and I wanted for James Bond was Tom Hiddleston, who plays Loki in the Avengers movies. He would be an awesome James Bond, and I would totally be behind it. But there were other ones like uh, Idris Ilba was suggested to be James Bond. And honestly, I really wouldn't be against that either. He'd be pretty good. I mean, there's other roles I'd prefer him to be in before he would do James Bond. Like, I'd love to see him be Green Lantern first. Um, and then one of the biggest suggestions that stood out to me was people were saying, well, what if we had Charlize Theron join these movies, but instead of James Bond, they would just call her Jane Bond. And that, that would be her thing. And just continue it that way and change it up a bit. And 
as much as I'm a person who, I, you know, likes changing things up, especially when you reboot something, I need, think need, things need to be changed up. Um, I think my problem with it is that a lot of people were like, oh, it's going to be this new progressive thing and it's going to be blah, blah, blah. And I mean, I don't think switching the gender of a character, switching the way the character looks or one little teeny piece of the character is really enough to call it innovation. It just feels like you're just doing the same thing, but you change the background, kind of. So I was like, don't... I was pretty much like, well, don't hire Charlize Theron to be Jane Bond if you're just trying to make a woman James Bond. That's just not... That's not going to help anybody in the process. Nobody's going to win out of that. And then this... I think this movie proves exactly that. That when you innovate a bunch of things together then you are going to create something much, much, much cooler than you even would have imagined. Hey guys, uh, sorry to cut it off the audio there, but I was having some def- technical difficulties with the mic. Uh, I was noticing that there was some sort of buzzing sound going on in the background, but uh, I've made some adjustments and I think that we should be clear of the buzzing for the rest of the episode. Sorry about that. All right, now that we're back in line, we've got things back up and running. Let's, uh, I guess if I'm, as I'm taking a dive into this movie, I want to start with the bad stuff and just get it out of the way because there are some bad things about it. I mean, they're not horrible, but it's stuff that holds it from being better or as good as John Wick. And uh, probably the first bad thing would probably just be the length uh, I think the movie's like two and a half hours long. It really doesn't need to be that long, especially for a spy story that's very simple from the background aspect. Character-wise, it gets pretty, you know, I wouldn't say complex, but more com- uh, uh, tricky, I guess, tricky. The characters get a bit tricky in a good way, but the story's very simple, so it didn't need to be that long. Um, and the story itself... It's it's pretty interesting at first, but then this halfway point throughout the movie, you just you kind of just stop paying attention to the story and you just start waiting for Charlize Theron to start kicking ass again. And then it picks up again towards the end of the movie, uh, especially with the plot twist at the end, which is what I'll get to later. But those were some of the bad elements of it. Uh, now that that's out of the way, unless I think of more bad things down this thought process, but, uh, some of the good things about this movie that were really cool was, uh, color. I loved the, the color use in it, uh, especially in scenes where they show, uh, Charlize Theron going into nightclubs and there's this blue and red mixed in with all of the scenes, which make it feel much more like a comic book kind of world, which would make sense considering Atomic Blonde is based on a comic book. So that made it feel like a true adaptation of a comic book into a movie as the colors were blended in, which was really cool. It was a good detail that, again, wasn't really necessary, but it was good. And outside of that, color of the nightclubs or color of uh, some of the other um, establishments she's in, because sometimes there's some cool, I forget, like a museum or something she's in where there's like a cool green tint in the color. Um, since it's Berlin during this, uh, 
Cold War, there's a lot of like bleakness in the color used whenever she's going around the towns and all of that, which again makes sense for the settings, so it makes everything seem much more bleak. I wouldn't want to see Mary Poppins colors in a Soviet-era movie. <laughs> so the colors I really liked. The music, I mean, I like the, the music they chose because they chose a lot of 80s music to make to give that 80s vibe. And then the way they used it is just kind of bland. There's nothing really that unique about it. They just thrown into scenes to make the scenes a little bit more fun. So there's nothing really that unique about it. Um, and then I, now I really want to get more into the character writing before I go into the action of the movie. Cause like I said, with Charlize Theron being casted as this character and her bringing her own spin to all of this gives us much more than we asked for. Because before this movie came out, people were thinking, oh, maybe she would be a good James Bond. And she definitely brings James Bond as qualities to this character. Like they have... She has her own Bond girl because her character's uh, uh, bisexual. So there's uh, that French girl from The Mummy that she hangs around with. So they have that sort of um, sex appeal brought about with those two characters. And then there's the alcohol element. She's drinking all the time in the movie. Even in the very beginning, she's taking like an ice bath. And then when she gets out, she has a bunch of vodka. So that alcohol imagery is definitely seen a lot. Uh, the... I would say there's definitely an essence of fashion as she goes around between scenes too because she's wearing different things. But you can't really compare that much to James Bond because while James Bond is, in a way, yes, fashionable, his is just different kinds of expensive suits. And while that is cool, then there's also Charlize Theron who's bringing different outfits and all these different stuff to different scenes, which is really cool. And... Like I said, as they expanded more and more throughout the movie, you get to find out so much more about her character. They don't tell you everything about her from the beginning. So she's not like a James Bond knockoff, although she might seem that way at the very beginning with how much she's very similar to the guy. But then as you get further and further along, as she, you find out she's very um, calculated. And a lot of the scenes where it seems like she has no idea what's going on or uh, you think she's getting played by somebody. She's actually got like 15 steps ahead in her head. And she's already figured everything else out. And then wrapping it up with that beautiful plot twist of her being an American agent the whole time. Which was awesome. Especially since I remember when I went back and watched it a second time. Uh, I was recognizing again how in certain scenes when she's talking to people, she didn't sound entirely British and it sounded like an American accent was slipping in. And when I was watching it the first time, I thought, well, that's kind of a, a stupid mistake. How come the director didn't have her retake that? Because that's very clearly a slip up. And then now rewatching it, I was like, holy shit, that slip up in the scenes kind of intentional. So they could hint at the fact that she's American the whole time. So that was really cool to take something that normally would be considered a mistake or just a blooper that they left in there turns out to be an intentional thing that's part of the entire story. So I was just thrown for a loop at the amount of detail that was considered in that part of her character. I know I brought up James McAvoy earlier, but I just don't think they did a lot with him. I think his character was just kind of insignificant. I know he was, you know, supposed to be like her cat and mouse uh, mental games kind of villain, but 
I just, I, I didn't find myself very interested in him, which is a, another uh, replication of John Wick, where the, the story highlights her so much that the villains just don't really seem like they matter or that they really should be worth paying attention to. So that's, it's a flaw, but it's also a very, um, it's a very easy flaw to look over without really ruining the movie for you. And then there's the action, which definitely starts bringing you back to John Wick. Because there's so many different types of fight scenes that start exhibiting the same uh, style that John Wick had, but also the same amount of uh, pace, where there's the intensity, and there's a certain level of realism. I'd say there's a little bit less realism in this one. But like there's a scene where she's, you know, where she's got a gun and she's shooting and she has to reload, which is not really often seen in action movies. But like there's a scene where she has like a I think she uses like a hose as like a weapon and it seems a little bit less realistic than something you'd see in John Wick. But the the highlight of that all of the action in the movie is this stairwell fight she has. That's from like the fifth floor of a building all the way back down to the center until she can get to the car. And it, they do really good camera tricks to make it seem like it's a one shot take throughout the entire fight where they have like maybe the camera panning and facing the wall. But as it comes back around, it's facing them again, which is very easy for them in editing to just stop the film there, go back into filming and start filming at a new scene, which is really cool because, again, it's attention to detail. And they make the fight seem very gritty. She's not doing what a lot of action movies do where she's fighting them without getting tired for one second or without, you know, getting a single bit of bruises or bleeding on her. In fact, by the end of the fight, her face is torn to shreds because she gets the crap beat out of her by, like, I think five guys and she still ends up getting out. And it's a really, really well-choreographed and awesome fight scenes. It's the best fight scene in the whole movie. The other ones are pretty good. And like I said, they're very good at matching John Wick. But that stairwell fight is so amazing and fun to watch. And I think, I'm trying to remember what else was going on with the action. She There was some driving in it, but not nearly as much as there was in John Wick or not nearly as notable. But much like John Wick, she was uh, Charlize Theron was doing her own stunts throughout the movie. In fact, while she was training for Atomic Blonde, uh, John Wick, not John Wick... <laughs> Uh, Keanu Reeves was training for John Wick Chapter 2, and they ended up training with the same people and training together uh, while they were preparing for the movies since um, both of those movies were using uh, people from the same crew back and forth. So even more so, this movie goes hand-in-hand hand with John Wick. But all of that combined, while it's not as good as, like I said, John Wick, Atomic Blonde is a very unique movie, and... Much like John Wick, it provided much more than we asked for. Because these days, we could have just taken another James Bond movie, or they could have rebooted James Bond with Charlize Theron and put in it and called her Jane Bond and kept the same format that we've always been used to for the last God knows how many decades with those movies. Like them or not. But this movie took all that stuff that we would ask for with that normal kind of movie and then expands upon it and creates a character that's much more interesting that has different qualities that you wouldn't expect and then adds plot twist levels and then makes the fights feel so much more gritty and intense and in your face and adds cool music that's 
more relatable to the era and more relatable to the audience instead of just using, you know, the normal James Bond theme that they play on repeat throughout those movies. So the theme of these two movies that I'm trying to present is that we can always get those kinds of movies we ask for. We could have always we could have always ended up with another revenge movie where the guys, you know, wife and daughter are killed and then he goes and gets his revenge and then that's the end of the story. But then we got John Wick where you've got great action, a great built universe, a great character and honestly surprising uh intensity surprised surprised at how good the sound mixing is and su surprised at how good the music is utilized so we got all of that without even thinking about what we really would have wanted and then we got the same thing again with atomic blonde it just it baffles me that people are able to innovate in such a way and provide stuff that nobody really even thought they wanted and that about wraps up my thoughts on both of these movies but uh as I conclude the episode, uh, I had a friend who suggested to me, hey, if, you, if you're trying to think of ways to maybe end your episodes, uh, maybe talk about recent stuff you've seen or recent thoughts on movies you've watched lately. And I was like, you know what? That's a pretty good idea. So one of the things I've watched recently was Glass, the new M. Night Shyamalan movie. In fact, I saw it twice at this point. And... Man, that's actually a, that was a pretty good movie, especially for M. Night Shyamalan, who went on such a downward spiral over the years, especially with, oh man, Last Airbender. You know what's funny? I didn't even really like the Last Airbender TV show. I wasn't a big fan of it as a kid, and still seeing that movie offended me. <laughs> so I, I think the worst one out of his batch of awful movies was The Happening. Ugh, that's some of the worst acting I've ever seen in my entire life. It's horrible. But... He's starting, he's been coming back over, you know, the last few years. Like, the visit wasn't perfect, wasn't great, but it was definitely a, a, a good step in the right direction for Shyamalan, and it was a good boost. And then when he did Split, he brought a level of talent that we nobody had seen since probably, like, Signs or Unbreakable, which is funny because the twist of the movie was that it was a sequel to Unbreakable the whole time. And then he took more time outside of Split to write and make Glass. Now, Glass, I would say, is the weakest of the three movies in this trilogy, but that's not entirely a bad thing. It's still a pretty damn good movie. The What I loved, I wouldn't say what I loved most, but one of the things I loved most was how the action of these two super-powered characters of Bruce Willis with the unbreakable skin and the strength, and James McAvoy as the Beast, it felt like, yeah, these characters definitely do have extra abilities other than humans, but they weren't trying to, like, recreate the action that we would have seen in, like, X-Men or Avengers. They just showed the characters, like, I forgot one, the, one of the, in the final fight, they showed, like, Bruce Willis picking up James McAvoy and, like, shoving him against a car and trying to punch him in the head at the car. And then he would miss, and when he punched the car, it would put a dent in it. And every time he was, like, pushing him against the car, the car would start sliding and, you know, getting pushed back. So they weren't showing him, like, throwing him through a building and diving straight at him like it's Infinity War. So they kept it, weirdly enough, for a superhero movie which honestly, I don't even know if I would call it that, but for a movie in that style, they kept it very grounded, which is a really good style choice for M. Night Shyamalan. 
And I'm not going to spoil the movie because I really think people should see it, all three movies. But uh, from a lot of people that I know have seen it or a lot of stuff I've read about the movie is a lot of people agree that the movie is good up until the ending with the classic M. Night Shyamalan plot twist and people felt, oh, this, the, the, twa- the plot twist ruined it and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I can see why people wouldn't like it. I personally did like it because I felt like the way he wrote the, the, the first two thirds of the movie felt like a setup for that uh, plot twist. And I feel like he was trying to understand the mind of the audience and going like, well, if I write the story this way, the audience is going to think I'm revealing the plot twist this way and I'm going to reveal this big thing. And instead, I'll bring a different plot twist that they won't even see coming. And which I, I, I liked the way he wrote that. And then when I saw Glass a second time, I was like, you know what? This plot twist is weaved in in the setup for the first two thirds of the movie. You can see it in there. Definitely not as well as something like Sixth Sense, but it's still there, and I found it to be pretty good. Could he have written a better ending? Probably, but I I felt like for the types of movies he was aiming for with these three films, he he got what he wanted to get done, and I think he put enough love and effort into it to make it feel like a really... Um, well attentive movie I guess that's the way I want to put it because I think for him he part of the reason he went on such a downturn was the fact that he just stopped caring about the movies he was making like you could tell by watching Last Airbender he didn't give a shit or the same with uh, After Earth oh he yeah he didn't give a fuck about the movie he was making he was just making a movie and then when I saw Split and now Glass I was like this is the M. Night Shyamalan we saw in Sixth Sense and in Signs and Unbreakable. He's paying attention to detail. He's using um, uh, colors throughout the throughout the movie. Like in, uh, there's one scene in Glass where they're showing um, the supporting characters for each of the three arcs. So they show like Bruce Willis's son next to the girl from Split, next to uh, Samuel Jackson's mom. And they're all wearing the respective colors of those arcs. So they show like this Bruce Willis's son wearing green, the girl from Split wearing yellow, and the Samuel Jackson's mom wearing purple. And those are the colors each of those characters are showing throughout the entire movie, and they're keeping all the colors blended in together. So there's like this attention to detail that he has again that he hasn't done in years. So I'm glad that he's back, like giving a fuck about the movies he's making, which is really good. All right, I've talked enough about that movie. Um, one I'll gloss over really quickly just because I don't have much to say about it was uh, I saw Dragon Ball Super Broly. And honestly, if you if you had talked to me like a year ago, I wouldn't have seen this movie. Uh, I just, I, I'm not a big fan of anime. I just, I, I, for years, I never understood it. Never understood it as a kid and I couldn't get into anything. And then this last year, I was talking with a friend, uh, shout out to Nolan Meisenberg. And... Uh, I was talking about how much I don't like anime, and he was like, no, but Dragon Ball Z is kind of different. It's, you know, it's in its own league. It's it's its own thing. And I was like, I don't know. Anime is just, I just can't get it to And he goes, dude, watch Dragon Ball Z. You're going to feel differently about this than you will the other animes. And I was like, whatever, man, if you say so. And then I watched Dragon Ball Z, and I was like, you know what? This motherfucker's right. Uh, Dragon Ball Z is very different. This is fun. And I fell in love with that show. And as soon as I... By the time I caught up on everything, that's when they announced this Dragon Ball Super Broly movie. And I was like, 
count me in. And so when I saw it, I got exactly what I wanted out of it. Good Dragon Ball action, good comedy laced into it. Um, not too long and not too short. So it felt like I got my money's worth without a movie that was dragging on in plot that was unnecessary. It had great characters and great voice acting. That's all I got to say. And outside of theaters, what I did see last week was Wolf of Wall Street. I had neglected this movie for such a long time. And then it came up on uh, IFC. And I was like, you know what? I haven't seen it. Fuck it. Let's just watch it. I think I just, I avoided it watching it for a while because when they announced it at the time, I did know a lot about Jordan Belfort. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to watch a movie that feels like it's celebrating a piece of shit human being. And from the trailers I th- I was watching, and I was like, it seems like they're glorifying a guy that conned people out of their money and ruined people's lives just so he could be richer and, di- and pretty much got away with it. I don't think I want to watch a movie that glorifies him. And then, you know, so now that it's been a few years and I wanted to watch it, I was like, okay. And I went into it trying to be as objective as possible. In fact, I really wanted to like the movie because I have so many friends who love this movie. And I know it's a Martin Scorsese movie and I love his work. I love a lot of his movies. And definitely watching this movie, I got the feel of something like Casino as I was watching it. It felt very much like Casino. But I still could not... It felt like a chore to watch it. It was just, in my opinion at least... If you, if you happen to like this movie, by all means, go ahead and like it. It's your right to. I'm not going to disrespect you for it. But I'm also reserving my like, my right to dislike this movie harshly. Because, oh my god, this movie was a pain in the ass to watch. I found myself at least three times, at least from when I counted, uh, pretty much yelling at the TV and just going, Jesus Christ, I fucking get it. They just they beat the whole... I'm rich thing and I'm doing this and this and that stuff for over half of the movie where it's talking about what he does in the office, all the antics he does to with the drugs and how many drugs he does, how he bangs hot chicks, what, how he's got a mansion with like multiple bodyguards. That's what I was laughing at. They did like a, like a one minute whole description of how his house is set up with all the bodyguards he has. And I was like, is this really fucking necessary for the story? And the movie's like three hours long. Jeez, it was a pain. And I, I can say now that I've seen it, I get why Scorsese went that route because I feel like a lot of people going into it do know what kind of a person he was like. But I think writing it and presenting the story in that manner of not really glorifying it but showing the positive aspects of being in that position isn't so much of saying it was good of him as more of saying telling the story from Jordan Belfort's perspective and how he felt living that lifestyle, which only reinforces the fact that he's a human piece of scum. And I just think for somebody like Martin Scorsese that's so talented, I think he could have spent his time better making a biopic about somebody else, honestly, or even people that are less scummy than him. But... It's just, and it, like I said, outside of how I felt about the person in real life, as a movie itself, it took way too long and it stuck way too far into the subject of the rich lifestyle. And it just, it just felt boring just because they kept going on and on and on and on. 
And I was just waiting for the next scene to happen. And then before I know it, he's like, now let me tell you about my yachts. And now let me tell you about this. Now I married this hooker that I used to snort coke off her tits. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, I fucking get it. See, I'm already in the same mental state now just thinking about it. But <laughs> like I said, if you like this movie, I can kind of understand why you would like it. Because I, I will admit there's some scenes where I laughed. I found it pretty funny. John Bernthal was the funniest person in the movie, in my opinion. So I can understand where you're coming from. And I do like Martin Scorsese. But I just feel like... Ugh, I just felt like that, was, that movie was a waste of his time, in my opinion. But if you love that movie, by all means, you go ahead and love that movie. No disrespect to you. And, like, and I've said it before in other episodes. I mean, feel free to like what you like. Feel free to dislike what you dislike. So... That's about all I've got for right now. That's all I got in my head. But uh, next episode, I'm going to be having my friend Matt Viegas uh, coming on as a guest. And we're going to be talking about No Country for Old Men, which is an amazing movie. I can't wait to talk about it. And I think I'll be recording that episode in a few days. And I'll have it posted on the day of recording. So probably if you're listening to this episode today which is uh, Valentine's Day 2019, I would expect it about five days from now. So, sorry for that little hiatus. It took me a while to get these microphones and get them working, and I didn't want to record anything until I made sure that they were working. I apologize for the technical difficulties in that first half, but it's all fixed now. I figured out what I was doing wrong, and I'm all set, and I will see you guys next time.